From St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas, a joyful Christian community, this is Soulful Sundays. A weekly podcast of our 5 o'clock service. I'm Patrick Miller, Director of St. Mark's. Welcome. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory be to thee, Lord. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. They do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it, and there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For most of my um, adult Christian journey, I don't remember a whole lot of my specific Christian journey as a child, but for most of my adult Christian journey, anytime I read the Gospels and there's some conflict between the Pharisees and the disciples, I like don't pay attention to the Pharisees because I'm a disciple of Christ, and so I should focus on what the disciples are doing, right? And if you're anything like me, if you grew up around church or Bible studies or anything else, when I say the word Pharisee, you have a negative reaction, right? They're the the bad guys of the Christian journey. They demean Jesus. They try to catch him doing bad things or wrong things. They enforce religious rules and social laws that we think of today as unjust They're the villains of the story. I'm convicted, though, this week of the fact that um, 
Nothing's ever that easy. Nothing's ever that black or white. And so I wanted to kind of revisit the Pharisees a little bit and see, see what that's about. And things I know and have known, and I'm going to reiterate tonight, still make total sense uh, in very personal ways. You see, the Pharisees were the religious leaders and authority of the Jewish community in the ancient Near East in the time of Jesus. So much so that after the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' death, the Pharisees became the foundation for rabbinical Judaism. They were extremely significant to Jewish identity and doctrine. They were keepers of the oral traditions of the Torah. They were the upholders of Mosaic law. They took their jobs seriously. Too seriously, probably, but so seriously that they refused to let any new upstarts or radicals or men named Jesus spread inappropriate or misleading interpretations of the Torah as they had received it. They were supposed to protect it. They were supposed to hand it down to the next generation to keep the faith alive in the people of God, to keep it well and sacred. So Christ's admonition of the Pharisees here, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Cut me a little differently this time around. I stand before you as a religious leader, as a keeper of the Christian tradition, as an upholder of the doctrines of the church, as someone who wants to pass the faith down to the next generation. I am, by all rights and intents, akin to a Pharisee in today's Christian landscape. And so that got me thinking about tradition and about how we treat it and what it's for. The Episcopal Church is rich with it. That's the first thing to know. We come on Sundays and the service is the same. Our liturgy is rooted in hundreds and possibly thousands of years of history. It's one of the ways we pass down our knowledge and our faith to the next generation. We worship with them together in the same way as our ancestors did. What happens, though, is that we get so focused on the ritual that we miss what it's supposed to point us to. We see it a lot, right? When a kid cries or screams in a service and your first thought is, what's a child doing in here? Or when the preacher sits in the left chair instead of the right chair and you think, that's not done that way. Or if you come to the services when I'm here, the candles get unlit a lot I forget the candles. People get upset at that. When we focus on the ritual itself and not the God it points us to, we misuse tradition. We take ourselves and our tradition too seriously. So I started to think about 
the good ways that we can use our tradition, why it's still around, because it is still around and it's beautiful and it's lovely and I would have nothing else for the world than this beautiful liturgy that points us to the love and grace of God. And I started um, reading a lot of articles about the late Senator John McCain while I was doing my research this week. And um, there were a couple of stories that really struck me. You know, Senator McCain was a student at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, which is just over a chain-link fence from my seminary. And we have a great arrangement. They're very gracious. They let all the seminary students and faculty use their rec facilities and their gym. And, and when you walk into the school, the hallways are lined with photos of notable alumni. I've walked by Senator McCain's photos in his sports uniforms and in his political poses more times than I can count on my way to piddle through an indoor workout on cold and snowy days. I read an article about him resenting his required chapel while he was a student there. When he was a student, they had to go to chapel every day in the morning, during the week, and then on Sunday evenings. And I think it's still the same. I can't remember, but um, he resented that, right? And he's, he's on tape, on record, in an interview saying it was, I hated it. I hated going. I only went because it was a requirement. And then I read an article about his time as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He spent the better part of five and a half years imprisoned, being beaten, fighting through bouts of dysentery, isolated from other people, He had two broken arms and a broken leg when he arrived, and they wouldn't give him medical attention unless he gave them military information, which he did not. His ability to survive under those conditions is unfathomable to me. But what got me about this story, what really just struck a punch to the gut, were the stories that his fellow prisoners would tell about his time as their chaplain, as they called him. Keep in mind his stories about Episcopal High School and his resentment of his chapel time there. They weren't allowed to have anything when he was a POW. No Bibles, no books. Very rarely were they allowed to be around the other people in the prison. But on Christmas Eve... They let them gather in a room for a Christmas Eve service that McCain led. When he was far from home in the worst conditions you can imagine, in pain and probably in permanent waves of fear, he could lead a Bible study from memorized scripture verses. And on that night when they let them gather in that room for Christmas Eve, he led a church service from memory, which included the Nicene Creed and other prayers. 
Some of his fellow prisoners said he had the whole Episcopal service memorized and never missed a word. He preached on scripture when all he had were his mind and his heart and nothing to write or read or study. And there are half a dozen accounts that indicate that those moments were what helped them make it through that experience. For all the time that he spent resenting his chapel requirement, it had wiggled its way into his bones. It stood as a structure of support, as some kind of furniture for the mind for him to rest upon so that he might gaze upon the grace and love of God. That is the beauty and power of tradition when it is used properly. That is the work of liturgy when it's passed down generation to generation, begrudgingly received or not, informing disciples of Christ. When we're hurting or scared, or in places of unimaginable sorrow, our tradition, our liturgy, which works its way into our very being, can take hold of us and bring us into the light of Christ when we cannot do it on our own. But when we use it as a tool for pomp and circumstance, when we focus on it to the exhaustion of and exclusion of all else, when we care more about how someone reads the prayers than the prayers themselves, we should feel the rebuke of Jesus as delivered to the Pharisees. We are abandoning the commandment of God and holding to human tradition. I love our church. I love our worship together. I wish more people would come and experience it so that they would know the spiritual power of tradition and worship which has been forged by the fires of time and use. But if I'm being honest, there are days that I care more about making sure the candles are lit and the procession line is straight than I do about worshiping God in this space. There are probably days when you care about those things more too. And for that, we have earned our rebuke. That is the dangerous side of tradition. That is the trap that the Pharisees fell into. So instead of protecting our tradition, gathering around it to hold it tight because it's so delicate, protecting it from the radicals and the upstarts, from the screaming children or the poor psalm settings, from the unclean beggar or the political opposition. My hope is that we can trust that it is strong enough and broad enough to hold us all. Pharisee and disciple. It is strong enough and broad enough to hold us all. And to point us toward what really matters, to point us toward the God who so desperately wants to love and embrace us. Amen.
This episode was produced by St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. Special thanks to our band, led by Cameron Deason-Hammond, and featuring Jeremy Nuncio, Asher Pudlow, and Andrew Gordon. Join us every Sunday for Soulful Sundays at 5 p.m. at St. Mark's, 3816 Bel Air Boulevard in Houston, Texas, or visit us online at stmarks-houston.org.